Good morning, everyone. Uh, We're going to be reading from Psalm 35 of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my Lord and my God. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the word of God. 
The, the Protestant reformer John Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. If you have experienced any emotion as a reaction to almost any type of experience, that is somehow represented somewhere in the 150 Psalms provided by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's, it's typically our habit to work through the Psalms every summer. Uh, they help us slow down. Uh, they help us pray. They help us meditate uh, as life kind of slows down as well. And, and so last summer, we, we finished last summer with Psalm 34. So we're going to begin today with Psalm 35. And actually, uh, David's language here uh, may distress you. You see the way he's talking uh, about his adversaries. Uh, we have to remember two things. First of all, he's praying. He's not saying these things to his adversaries. He's wrestling with his emotions to his father in heaven in prayer. That's the first thing we need to remember as we contextualize this strong language. The second thing we need to remember is David was a man, uh, whoever wrote this Psalm was a man fighting for his life in a legal battle. Something else to consider. He says at the beginning, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Now, when you, you, you see that word contend, the old Hebrew word, it actually meant to go to court, to bring civil suit against somebody else. So what David is saying here is, God, go to court for me. People have taken me to court. I want you to go to court for me against them. He says in verse seven, they have accused me without cause. And he says in verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. And even more distressing than that, these false accusers that are speaking lies about him in a court of law were supposedly his friends. So he's also brokenhearted because he's feeling betrayed. Not only falsely accused, but betrayed by those he thought he could trust. So maybe, maybe no one in this area right now, maybe nobody in this yard, I was going to say in this room, but I, it doesn't really apply. Nobody in the yard here can maybe relate to David as a military commander or as a king, right? Like leaders always have enemies and adversaries constantly. Maybe none of us can relate to that. However, I think we can all, or some of us can relate to some things like uh, maybe you can relate to being falsely accused, Maybe you can relate to being wrongfully judged or, or wrongfully, um, wrongfully persecuted in a situation. Maybe, maybe you can relate to being unjustly and unfairly harmed, if not emotionally, even physically. Or maybe you have watched other people suffer unjust punishment or abuse and you are brokenhearted over that. I think in some way, each of us can relate to what David is dealing with in this prayer. The Bible shows that God cares deeply about justice, not only on a personal level for you, if you've been wronged unfairly, but on a corporate level for groups of people, for entire people groups, for entire countries. God cares deeply about justice because he is just. But as we see uh, with David's situation, not everybody can guarantee justice for themselves or even for others, especially the weak, but even those who are powerful, 
Even those who are powerful and have the ability to do something cannot always ensure and guarantee that justice on a personal level or on a corporate level can take place, right? Then what? Well, it, then we pray. And what, one of the things I wanna to communicate to you today as you look at this psalm is, is prayer is not simply a then what response for when we can't get fair treatment. Prayer is an always what response. Prayer is not a then what, it is an always what response to what we see happening in the world and what we see happening to ourselves personally. And actually, the only legitimate, the only legitimate impetus for a healthy response to persecution is God-centered prayer. It is not the only thing we should do when we're treated unfairly, but it must drive everything that we do. Not the only thing we do, but it must be the foundation to all that we do. God-centered prayer. And this is because Christians are called to pursue earthly justice while trusting alone in God's justice. That's what I'm gonna try and impress upon you today. That as Christians, we are called to pursue earthly justice wherever and whenever possible, but trust only in God's justice. That's the only foundation. That's the only way from not despairing or not falling prey to our own anger and bitterness. And what I want you to see in David's prayer today is three things. There are many things to see, but I can only focus on three for now. Sorrow, assurance, and hope. David prays his sorrows. He prays in sorrow, but he also prays with assurance. And David prays with hope. And what I want you to see today is you need those three things. We need these three things in our prayer lives. Sorrow, assurance, and hope as we go to God. So we'll begin with sorrow. God invites us to pray to him with sorrow. God is a father who is a righteous judge. He is our heavenly father who is also the righteous judge who cares deeply about justice and he grieves with those who are hurting and he grieves with the oppressed. It is a fundamental blessing of being a child of God if you're a Christian. It is a fundamental blessing of being God's child to just go to him and cry to him. We take this for granted. It is a basic blessing for the believer to run to God with your sorrows. Going to cry to daddy is a fundamental privilege of every Christian. David says in verse 23, how long, O Lord, will you look on? He's hoping that his father will respond. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Verse 17. Then in verse 23, excuse me, he says, awake, rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Now, based on what David's saying, you may be asking the question, because I've been asking this question all week. How is somebody who is suffering unjustly, who is suffering personal attacks, blessed? How can you say when you're personally attacked that you're blessed? because God identifies with the weak. That is the blessing in bringing our sorrows to him that he identifies with the weak, with the oppressed, and listen to this, he identifies with those who are unseen and with those whose cause goes unheard. Those who are weak, those who are suffering, those who are unheard, those who are unseen, those who do not have any advocacy, 
those with whom you say nobody is defending them, nobody is looking out for that person, the world overlooks them. They don't have the world's attention, but they have God's attention. The Old Testament shows us again and again, they have God's attention. He personally identifies with them. So much so that Jesus in one of his parables would say, someday those who took care of those who are oppressed and unseen and unheard, Jesus is gonna say to them, you did all of those kind things, you did them unto me. God identifies with the weak and those who are defenseless. So when Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, Jesus was speaking from this ancient tradition of the psalmists and the prophets who knew that God identified with those who know they have sorrows. Look, you and I are living in a post-technological revolution age. We are post-technological revolution people. And, and if, you are, if you are a Gen Xer like me or older, you are considered a, a digital immigrant. The digital revolution has taken place since you became an adult. If you are a millennial or younger, you are called, you're considered a digital native. You can't remember a time in your life where you didn't have the internet and a smart device. Right? So, so we are living in a post-technological revolution and we assume and we expect and we demand measurable results quickly. And we assume and expect action to take place maybe immediately. We want action yesterday. But we take for granted as Christians, we take for granted the immense comfort that God, the God of the universe even cares to listen to us in our sorrow. We take this for granted as his children that there is a God who invites us to cry unto him. The fact that he is even listening makes the biblical religion unique of all others. So the Psalms as a whole and I kind of have to remind us of this every time we, we go back to the Psalms in the beginning of each summer. The Psalms as a whole invite us to pray our sorrows to a God who is listening and who grieves with us. Have you ever been wronged unjustly? Have you ever been sadly betrayed by people you thought you could trust? Have, has your kindness and love to somebody gone unreciprocated. Ever pour yourself out to somebody and it's not returned? As a matter of fact, it's, it, they, instead of blessing you back, they harm you. Instead, you could relate to David. You could relate to all the psalmists. Or has the suffering or persecution of other people deeply grieved you and broken your heart? Well, you have a God who agrees with you and grieves alongside of you. What did the author of the book of Hebrews say? In Hebrews chapter four, he said, we do not have a high priest. He was talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He said, we have one who's been tested and tempted in every way, just like we have, but he was sinless and we're not. And it is Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, who in Isaiah chapter 53 identifies with the brokenhearted and the oppressed and the overlooked and the unheard by saying, I am a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Have you ever poured yourself out to somebody hoping to get trust 
and affirmation and confirmation that you weren't crazy, that what you saw was legitimately a problem, that what you were experiencing was legitimately, legitimately wrong, and then they just disagreed with you? They listened, they go, yeah, I don't agree, sorry. You're not really hurting. You ever, doesn't that stink? How did that make you feel? Um, that is how the psalmist feels. But David is convinced that God agrees something is wrong. And so you and I, like the psalmist here, are free. We are free to come to God and cry our sorrows out to him. But there's more than sorrow. That's not the end of the story. Because here's the problem. Some of us and some of you are stuck in your sorrow. Sorrow is not something that should end your progress in life. You may be having to take your sorrow with you as you continue, but it's not the end of the story. Some of us get stuck in our sorrow. We get stuck in our grief and we become angry and bitter and cynical and we just shut down. And, and the thing is for the Christian, uh, you don't have to stop at your sorrow. You may have to carry your sorrow with you, but there's so much more. As the believer grows in faith, the believer can begin to pray with assurance. That's what you see here. David's not only praying in sorrow, he's praying with assurance. This is what I mean by assurance. God knows the truth about the situation. God knows what's going on. He sees everything. He sees what's not seen and he knows what's unheard. He knows the truth about the situation. And, and for the believer at the deepest level, that has to be enough for you. Not saying it's the only thing. I'm not saying you don't act. I'm not saying you don't keep praying. But at the deepest level, the person who is growing in their faith realizes that because God knows the full truth, that is enough for her. That is enough for him, regardless of what's going to happen. David says in verses 21 and 22, listen to him. He says, they open wide their mouths against me. He's talking about his accusers, his false accusers right now. They open wide their mouths against me and they say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Right, they're saying we saw him. We, maybe it was a scandal. Maybe it was something illegal. Maybe it was a personal private skeleton in his closet. Whatever it was, he knows it's not true. But they've come out publicly and now it's gone to court. And, and so he's saying, my enemies are saying, ha ha, our eyes have seen what he's done. But then he responds to it in verse 22. He says to his God, you have seen, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. See, David knows that God knows the truth. David's accusers claimed falsely that they saw him doing something wrong. And that's really dangerous because David understands that without counter witnesses, and he doesn't seem to have any, without counter witnesses, lies become facts. And he's helpless to do anything about that. Doesn't matter how powerful he is. He's helpless to change alleged lies in, into myths and falsehoods. He's concerned that what they're saying without any evidence that contradicts them is going to be interpreted as fact. And that means he's in big trouble. And in his helplessness, David declares, God sees. My, he sees my innocence and he sees their deceit. Now, let me make a clarification at this point. David is not sure he's going to get off in court. He's saying all this stuff. He doesn't know if he's going to get off. He doesn't know if he's going to even be declared innocent in the, in, the, in, the, in the court of public opinion. 
He has no idea where this whole thing's gonna go, but he is sure that God knows he's innocent and God knows his cause is legitimate. How precious is that? When somebody says, yes, what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're thinking about this is right on. I'm with you. And he knows that God is with him. So the believer can pray with assurance that God is an all-knowing, unbiased judge of every situation, of every heart, of every conflict, of every injustice, God is an unbiased, all-knowing judge. And that's how we have to understand assurance. Any of you who know a little bit about theology understand that assurance is a big theological word. But assurance, it means more than, I'm gonna go to heaven someday because Jesus died for me. It is that, but it's so much more than that. Assurance is, God will never leave me or forsake me. Right now, as a sinner in this broken world, God will never leave me or forsake me. He sees me, he understands, and he's eventually going to respond to this situation. Assurance is not just for the future. As Rachel said earlier to the children, assurance is for you and me every day. And maybe one of the best examples of that in the New Testament is is when the Apostle Paul was was writing a letter uh, to Timothy, his friend, 2 Timothy chapter one, Paul says to Timothy, you know, I'm, I'm, being, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted for my devotion to Jesus. I, I'm an apostle and I've been called by God to, to preach and to teach and to carry the gospel throughout the world. And I'm, I'm suffering specifically for what God has told me to do. But he goes on to say in 2 Timothy verse one, and I'll quote him word for word, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's assurance. That's practical everyday assurance. Paul realizes, I I am trusting in God's ability to guard what he has given me to say and to do. Right? The believer is convinced despite persecution, despite injustice and unfairness, God knows what he's doing. That's assurance. You are convinced that God knows what he's doing. Now, God may not guard what you're trying to protect. Listen, Americans, God may, God may not guard what you're trying to protect, but he will always guard what he intends to protect. He will always guard, as Paul says, what he has entrusted to you. That's why it's so important to know his will and to stick with the word of God and to not isolate yourself from the people of God because the only thing he's truly guaranteeing you that he will protect in your life is what he's entrusted to you. Not necessarily what you think is the most important thing. So the believer prays over unjust suffering in sorrow, but with assurance. Sorrow and assurance. Now listen, if your particular case of wrongs done to you or if your cause for wrongs done to others lacks this type of assurance, then your justice is human-centered. It's human-centered. It does not give God as the only just judge glory. It's giving you glory or someone else. Let me explain what I mean. The Bible reveals that we suffer as sufferers who are sinners. 
We do not suffer, we may suffer innocently at times, but, but we are always suffering as people who are morally culpable before a perfect God. We suffer as sufferers who are sinners themselves, which means that in our suffering, and as we see how we've been unfairly, unfairly treated or, or unjustly spoken against, we are mostly focused on our own importance. See, when sinners suffer, we largely see the situation from our own perspective and are mostly interested in protecting not simply ourselves, but our vantage point and our perspective. We still suffer as sinners. And, and, and you know, David, here's a, here's a great example. Um, actually, yeah, David says in two different places in the Psalm, if you're uncomfortable with what I'm saying, I want you to hear what David says in two different places in Psalm 35. Look at verses nine and 10. Listen to how he's talking about how he's been wronged and how he's asking for God to deliver him. He says in verse nine and 10, Lord, if you help me, quote, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, oh Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who's too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. This is how David's talking. Look at how he ends the psalm. The, very last, the, the last two verses, 27 and 28, he says, let those who delight in my righteousness, what he's meaning there is righteousness means vindication, justification. He's saying, he's saying my innocence, my acquittal. I, I get off as innocent, right? I'm declared as innocent, I'm vindicated. He says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore what? How great is David? How great is David's attorney? How great are the people that helped this happen? What does he say? Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is how David is addressing this injustice against him. He's pointing all of the praise and glory. He's pointing the goal of it all to his God. Listen, I know some of you are taking notes. If you write one thing down today, I, I hope it's this. The goal of God's justice is God's glory, not yours. Not any human beings, no governments. The goal of God's justice is God's glory. You see, human-centered justice always turns into vengeance. I'm not gonna qualify it, just look at history. Human-centered justice always results in vengeance. But God-centered justice, as we see here in David's words at the end of the Psalm, God-centered justice always leads to worship. Check Acts chapter six, verse seven. When the early church properly addressed an issue of inequity among them within the congregation. Luke tells us in Acts chapter six, verse seven, that the word of God continued and more people came to faith. The goal of God's justice is God's glory. And here's how to tell if your justice is human centered. When you're not personally vindicated, when you're not personally seen in the light you wanted to be seen in, even if you're right and you're true, if you're not personally vindicated or if your cause fails or is disrupted 
or is marginalized, do you give up in despair? Are you just stuck in your sorrow? Or if it all fails and if you're not vindicated, do you lash out in anger? Do you let your anger turn into bitterness and acts of vengeance? If these two extremes are true of you, or if some version of these two extremes are true of you, um, then your case, your personal case, is you-centered, or your cause is you-centered, and you are robbing God of his glory. But, here's the good news. If you bring your sorrow to God in prayer, if your sorrow is directed to him, and if your assurance in his ability to know the situation truly and deal with the situation eventually, if your sorrow is directed to God in prayer, and if your assurance in him is at the center of your prayer life, well, you can pray with hope. That's the third thing. Praying with sorrow, praying with assurance, and finally, praying with hope. The hope is that you'll eventually and completely be vindicated. It's going to happen. If not in this life, soon enough, it's going to happen. You'll be eventually completely vindicated by the best defense attorney who ever lived. David in this case was innocent. But David in many other cases was guilty with no alibi. In many other cases, when David was proved to be wrong, he was not, he was not justly punished by human court. God dealt with him. But David, David messed up plenty of times when no human court judged him rightly for it. But the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ defended David and me and you, not only when we're innocent, he defended us when we were guilty. He defended us because we have been guilty. The only person who is ever able to claim pure innocence was Jesus. And Jesus was falsely charged for things that he didn't say and things that he didn't do. And Jesus was unfairly convicted for crimes he didn't commit. And Jesus was humiliatingly and terribly crucified on a Roman cross. And Jesus applied Psalm 35 to himself in John 15, verse 25, when he said, he quoted David's words verbatim, they hated me without a cause. And this is why the only one who was ever truly and purely innocent allowed himself to be falsely accused, unjustly convicted, and shamefully executed. This is why it had to happen. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, answered that question this way. Here's the answer to the why Jesus had to suffer like this. It was to show God's righteousness. It was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just. And listen to this, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you trust in Jesus, if you are following Jesus, if you believe that his death for your guilt, that his death for your shame 
and his resurrection for your eventual vindication was a historical fact, then you've been given, listen to this, we've been given as followers of Jesus all the innocence and vindication and acquittal we'll ever need. And so Jesus gives a new meaning. The crucifixion gives a new meaning to what David said in verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. He's not even saying vindicate me according to my clean record, because I know I didn't do this. He's saying vindicate me, Lord, according to your righteousness. And another way of saying that is in light of the gospel of Jesus, Lord, vindicate me according to Jesus's righteousness. That's where my assurance is coming from from a man who grieves alongside of me with my sorrows, but who will eventually, when he returns, vindicate me completely because he has taken me into himself and I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, not in my own. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to Christ's righteousness is how you and I can echo the words of David when we know that we have been falsely accused or wrongfully treated or we grieve and sorrow over the abuse that we see acted upon others. So I pray, you and I must pray with hope. If all of this is true, then we pray with hope. I have been declared innocent in Jesus, even though I've done wrong. And even if nobody sees what I've done right, I have been declared innocent in Jesus Christ and I will be vindicated with him when he returns. So the Christian is called to pursue earthly justice while trusting alone in God's justice. We work hard. We have to be creative. We have to work hard. We have to stay in the game. We have to be consistent. But we know, we know that God alone accomplishes true justice. So we must pursue justice wherever possible and, when, and whenever possible for ourselves, yes, and for our families and close friends, but even for those we don't know and even for those that we don't trust and even for those who have, who have hurt us. But the key is we trust in God's justice alone. We remember that that's at the foundation. That's the only thing we can truly guarantee in a broken world. And the Christian can truly begin to pray as David did in verse three, say to my soul, God, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Remind me, God, that my salvation is not in my acquittal. My salvation is not in my cause. My salvation is not in my ability to do something here. My salvation is you. And we begin to pray that way. Lord, remind me, say to my soul, Lord, that you are my salvation. You and I forget that again and again and again, and we have to remember. Say to my soul, Lord, you are my salvation. Let me never forget it. So pray your sorrows to your God because Jesus also suffered and he sympathizes with you but pray with assurance because Jesus's death has justified you forever as innocent. And finally, pray with hope because Jesus is returning to vindicate us. Why, for our own glory? No, for his glory. He will be glorified when his righteous people who have suffered unjustly in this world are eventually vindicated by him.
We will be blessed and he will be praised. Sorrow, assurance, and hope is the prayer life of the Christian who sees unfair treatment and wants to do something about it. Sorrow, assurance, and hope. Now, now you're ready, as Micah said, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have laid foundations that, that may, may be attractive to us, but are fundamentally flawed because you haven't laid those foundations. We, we are amazed that such a sinner as David could still see clearly enough in his own suffering that he could pray with sorrow but not give up because he could pray with assurance that you saw him and understood the problem and that he could pray in hope that you eventually would right all wrongs. Father, may our personal pursuits for, for upending and overturning the wrong ways that we have been treated as people and in the wrong ways that our neighbors and our fellow citizens and our brothers and sisters in Christ have been treated wrongfully. Help us, help us to follow your plan that we would know that as we work and as we labor, we can trust in your justice alone. Uh, guide each individual here, whatever they're going through, whether it's personal or, or whether, it's, whether it's bigger than that, whether it's corporate or whether it's cultural, help, help us to be able to ask you Say to my soul, I am your salvation. In the name of Jesus, our vindicator, amen.